Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight the incredible thought leaders and personalities in our community and discover who they are at home, at work, and in between. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Welcome to SWE Stories, Tales from the Archives. I'm Ann Perusik, SWE's Director of Editorial and Publications. And I'm Troy Eller-English, SWE's Archivist. Today, we'd like to explore once again SWE's 1957 convention in Houston. It's a story that's been told often in SWE, but recently, we've rediscovered documents scattered throughout the archives that deeply expand our understanding of what happened in 1957 and how it opened conversations in the following years about segregation and inclusion within the society. Our story begins with Yvonne Young-Clark. She graduated from Howard University in 1951, the first woman to earn a mechanical engineering degree at the university. In February of 1952, she sent a handwritten letter to Hilda Edgecombe, Swee's treasurer, and enclosed $1 for a subscription to Swee's journal, the predecessor to today's Swee magazine. In her letter, she wrote, quote, Miss Doris M. McNulty, Publication Committee of SWE in Philadelphia, gave me your address and she also sent me an application. I'm a graduate of Howard University, and I finished the Engineering and Architecture School in December, end quote. Now, Clark did not explicitly say that she was Black, but at the time, Edgecombe lived just a mile and a half from Howard University. It seems very likely that she would have known it to be a historically Black university. Clark also sent in her membership application that same day, and just last year we learned from her son, Milton Clark, that she had attached her portrait to her application to ensure that Sweet understood she was Black. And Clark's race did matter in 1950s America. State and local governments in the 18 and 1900s, particularly in the former Confederate states of the American South, passed numerous laws requiring and enforcing racial segregation and restricting where non-white people could live, work, go to school, shop, which water fountain or door they could use, and who they could or could not associate with. And while the laws might not have been quite as explicit in the North, real estate redlining and restrictive covenants, racist banking practices, and other restrictive policies created racially segregated environments throughout the country. Clark came from an educated and respected middle-class family, and she was fully aware that others might try to use race to limit her opportunities. But she also purposefully chose in life not to internalize other people's problems. 
she sent in her SWE membership application in February 1952 and let SWE decide if race was going to be a problem. Because SWE members were scattered around the country and long-distance phone calls were expensive, most of SWE's business during this time period was done by mail, and much of that mail has made it to SWE's archives. I've dug through many boxes and have read through hundreds of letters. If SWE, as an organization, had any conversations about Clark's race specifically, or about admitting racial minorities into the society generally, I have not found them in the archives. In an effort to establish the Young Society's professional credentials within the larger engineering community, the membership committee was singularly focused on applicants' engineering qualifications, and it doesn't seem to have considered race in any context. Clark's membership application was approved in March 1952. She joined the Philadelphia section and became SWE's first black member. Five years later, in 1957, SWE's national convention was held at the Shamrock Hilton Hotel in Houston. At the time, Houston had many Jim Crow laws enforcing racial segregation. According to Clark's well-known story, the hotel understood SWE was integrated and had promised it wouldn't be a problem up until Clark arrived at the front desk. Then, the hotel refused to honor her reservation. SWE's president, Mickey Gerla, threatened to cancel the convention and, according to Clark's son, Milton, also threatened to go to the media. But Clark was adamant that she didn't want to disrupt the convention, so they reached a compromise with the hotel management. Clark was still not allowed to stay at the hotel. Instead, she spent nights with an aunt and uncle who lived nearby. But the hotel allowed her to attend the convention during the day with the provision that she had to be escorted by a SWE member at all times, knowing, of course, that the remaining SWE members happened to be white women. Essentially, the hotel management didn't want her to be seen walking through the lobby alone or at the coffee shop or newsstand and hoped that the other white hotel guests would see her as little as possible. So, SWE members engaged in what you might call a genteel version of civil disobedience, technically meeting the hotel's demands while ignoring the manager's intent. They escorted Clark in through the front doors in the morning and strolled through the hotel all day, making sure that she was very, very visible. Clark recalled the camaraderie she felt at the time in a 2001 SWE oral history interview. The convention and the hotel uh, compromised, and I was met at the front door every day to go to the convention, and I was let out at the front door every night mm -hmm. when I got picked up by my aunt and uncle. But um, we had a ball. Anytime anybody wanted some cigarettes, they came and found me and we walked. Because I could, as long as I had a, a person with me, I could move around the hotel, but I had to be accompanied at all times, mm -hmm. from the front door back to the front door. So I've been to the newsstand and 
coffee shop. We went everywhere that, that, that one week. Mm -hmm. We had a ball. <laughs> and uh, I did go to some of the meetings because I had to. <laughs> Clark's story is well known within SWE, but recently we learned that there was another side to the 1957 convention. Inez Bellamy Hazel, a junior engineer at Raytheon, became SWE's second Black member in 1952, joining the society just a few weeks after Clark. Bambi Hazel, as she was known to her friends, represented the Boston section on SWE's board of directors in 1957. She planned to attend the Houston convention, but fellow Boston member Mary Pottle called the hotel to confirm that Hazel would be allowed to stay there. She explained how that phone call went during a 2017 oral history interview with the SWE Boston section. So I called the hotel. Yeah. And they said, well, no, we don't have any rooms for what. And I said, look, she's with us. This is a group. And he said, well, we can fix her up in another hotel. And then what you can do is when she comes to a meeting, we can have somebody meet her at the door and take her to the meeting and back, but she cannot roam around the hotel. Wow. I said, okay, thank you. So we said, now, what's your name again? I said, it doesn't matter, because I'm never coming. Oh, so I called, uh, got a hold of National, and said, Boston will not participate this year, and will not as long as you're going to places that discriminate. We want no part of it. Pottle's oral history interview is astonishing because while we knew Inez Hazel was an early member of SWE, we didn't know that she had intended to go to the convention. And we didn't know that SWE Boston, at least, knew that black members wouldn't be allowed to stay at the hotel and had threatened to boycott the convention because of it. So, perhaps the situation at the hotel was a case of extreme miscommunication between the convention planners and the hotel management. Or, perhaps Swiss leaders, who were primarily located in the northeastern United States, didn't fully grasp the extent of segregation in the South. The end result was that one way or another, Yvonne Young-Clark attended that convention, expanded her engineering knowledge through the technical sessions, and built her professional network. And I think that experience contributed to Clark's warm relationship with the society. She was an active SWE member throughout her life, served on the executive committee in the 1970s, became a fellow in 1984, and in 1998, was named SWE's Distinguished Engineering Educator. Clark seemed destined to have a successful career, but the technical knowledge she gained along with the networking she experienced at the 1957 convention probably made her pathway to success just a little bit easier. But then, contrast Clark's story with that of Hazel, who either could not or would not accept the segregated compromise offered by the hotel. She went on to a long and distinguished career in systems engineering and computer programming, but that year she didn't have access to the professional connections and the strong social support offered at the SWE convention. I can't help but wonder if not having that experience made her career path as a Black woman engineer 
just a little bit harder than it already was. The experience at the 1957 Convention Hotel did spark change within SWE, however. In the months that followed, SWE leaders didn't explicitly reference the hotel incident in their board proceedings or correspondence. But there's signs that the events didn't sit well with them either. Shortly after the Houston Convention, the board approved a proposal to host the 1959 Convention in St. Louis. In her final report, St. Louis Convention Chairman Beulah Loomis wrote that they chose the host hotel, quote, because of its accessible location, the excellence of its staff with their experience in handling the many conventions held there, and the assurance that there would be no embarrassment to any of our members registering there. That desire to shield members and the society overall from what they cautiously and perhaps even timidly called embarrassment was codified on August 9, 1958, when the Board of Directors passed a convention policy that read, in keeping with the language of the time, quote, segregation. The southern sections should be allowed to have the national convention. The sections must provide equal accommodations for colored members and ensure that no colored member is subjected to unpleasantness or embarrassment in attending meetings, end quote. Interestingly, at the same meeting, the board also approved policies requiring that any invocations or prayers at the convention had to be non-denominational, and that meals should meet religious dietary restrictions. Five years later, in 1963, someone smudged out the word colored, showing both a growing recognition that discrimination extended to groups beyond Black Americans and a growing desire to create a welcoming environment for women engineers from a variety of backgrounds. But while leaders wanted the society to be racially integrated, it wanted to achieve this quietly, without drawing public attention to itself, and while still operating within the boundaries of the law, unjust as it was. One of the people who voted on SWE's anti-segregation policy in August 1958 was Virginia Tucker, the society's vice president. At the time, Tucker was an engineer at Northrop in California. However, in 1935, she had been hired as one of the very first female computers, or mathematicians, at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia. She went on to supervise more than 400 female computers at Langley until her departure in 1948, including the black women in Langley's West Area Computing, the segregated computer pool made famous in Margot Lee Shetterly's book and movie adaptation, Hidden Figures. Tucker had been trying to recruit Langley's female computers into SWE. However, in a November 1958 letter to membership committee chairman Elizabeth Plunkett, she wrote that, quote, It may become awkward to organize a section since there are several Negro women within the NASA. Of course, the Virginia laws are such that they could not assemble for dinner meetings. End quote. Most likely, Tucker is referring to Virginia's Public Assemblage Act, 
one of a series of so-called racial integrity laws passed in Virginia between 1924 and 1930, meant to prevent the mixing of races. The Public Assemblage Act required public spaces in Virginia to be strictly segregated, meaning that if the women of Langley created a racially integrated SWE section, they could not gather together at places like restaurants or community halls. And, given the realities of social segregation at the time, they probably would not have gathered in each other's homes either. Rather than trying to push the boundaries of the Virginia laws, Tucker wrote, quote, I hope that you can talk some of them into joining, and I feel that the Negro section there would understand and possibly organize another group. End quote. Tucker continued to explain that Langley's West Area Computing quote, was under my jurisdiction when I was there, and if Dorothy still heads this West Computers, I feel that she would understand that handicap. End quote. The Dorothy she refers to is Dorothy Vaughn, head of Langley's segregated West Area Computing Unit. While some of the women at Langley may have joined SWE individually, they did not create a new SWE section there, segregated or not. It's interesting that Tucker wrote this letter just a few months after SWE's board of directors passed those convention policies. And possibly the situation at Langley was on the back of her mind when she and the rest of the board voted to avoid hosting segregated events while still operating within the confines of local law. And Sui's determination to follow through on the policy was tested in 1961. Through this, we can see the conflict between professionalism and activism and the underlying tension between being an organization based upon professional credentials and professional behavior on the one hand, yet by virtue of its existence, being a change agent. Added to that, let's remember that SWE had recently passed the IRS audit, successfully defending its nonprofit tax status, but the seriousness of that threat was still fresh. It certainly had an impact on the leader's ability to take a potentially controversial stand, let alone one that would be perceived as political. So, on June 1st of that year, SWE Vice President Patricia Brown sent a letter to the Council of Section Representatives, which is the predecessor to today's Senate, explaining that while the 1962 convention was supposed to be in Atlanta, quote, Recent interracial incidents in the Deep South have caused the Atlanta section to suggest that SWE reconsider the advisability of meeting there, end quote. We don't know specifically what prompted the Atlanta section's concern, but the city was very much at the heart of the civil rights movement, and protests both for and against segregation were frequent. Students had been holding sit-ins at segregated businesses and lunch counters throughout the city for a year, and in January 1961, riots broke out when the Supreme Court ordered the University of Georgia in nearby Athens to admit two Black students. Brown clarified the Atlanta section's concerns, continuing, quote, As you know, 
The SWE membership is open to persons of any race, creed, or color. We have several Negro members, one of whom attended the convention in Houston a few years ago. The Atlanta section does not mean to imply that they fear discrimination problems in the hotel and meeting areas. What they mistrust is a possible attempt by overzealous partisans of any faction to exploit the openness of our group meeting to their own ends, end quote. In other words, Swede leaders wanted a racially integrated society, but they didn't necessarily want to draw the public's attention to that fact at a time and in a place where both peaceful and violent protests were distinctly possible. I don't think we can overstate the impact of having just successfully defended its tax-exempt status after the IRS had attempted to revoke it. Leaders were particularly wary at this time about being seen as political, and having an integrated convention in Atlanta could be seen as political, regardless of their intentions. After considering the situation in Atlanta, Pat Chaplier, Houston Section Representative, and one of the women who escorted Clark through the hotel in 1957, replied in a June 9th letter, quote, We did have some incidents which were most embarrassing to us as members and to the Negro SWE member who attended the sessions. These incidents were not foreseen by us, and we certainly regret that they happened. We are very glad that they were not exploited or publicized in any way. But today in Houston, it is our opinion that such simple incidents would be picked up by the National Wire Service. Therefore, if an integrated meeting should be held in Atlanta in 1962, we believe that the same thing would happen, only more so. Therefore, the only way for the convention to be held in Atlanta would be for the Negro SWE member not to attend. We realize that the thought of such action is galling to a professional organization. Before making any decision, the Negro SWE members should be consulted, and their opinion should greatly influence whatever decision is reached. End quote. Brown replied a few days later, agreeing with Chaplier's overall assessment, but she noted the impossibility of polling SWE's black members, writing, quote, We don't know which of our members are Negro. If they are section members and have attended meetings, some of the three members naturally know their race. We don't have any separate records of this, however, and have no way of consulting these members as you suggest, end quote. Brown also seemed to hint at the fear of protesters infiltrating the convention, continuing, quote, Furthermore, because we do not close our meetings to members only, Anyone can attend our conventions if the registration fee is paid. For these reasons, we cannot protect the SWE from possible incidents. I deeply regret the Southern progress in race relations has been subjected to so much pressure, resulting in lost ground rather than advancement. Under the present circumstances, I feel that the SWE has no choice but to forego national meetings in the South. End quote. The Atlanta section formally withdrew its invitation to host the 1962 convention, 
on June 16, 1961. And, a few weeks later, the Council of Section Representatives accepted a proposal to move the convention to Chicago instead. The Society's National Convention did not return to the South until 1974, a full decade after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forced the repeal of some of the country's most egregious racial segregation laws. And coming full circle, in 1998, the SWE Conference returned to Houston, where Yvonne Clark received SWE's Distinguished Engineering Educator Award, an apology from the mayor, and a key to the city. Because of what she experienced at the 1957 convention, and because Inez Bambi Hazel couldn't experience the convention at all, SWE took the first steps in its ongoing journey to understand that in order to improve diversity in engineering, it needed to recognize and support the diversity of its own members. On behalf of myself and everyone else at SWE, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your social network. You can keep up to date with our podcast on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast and on our blog, altogether at altogether.swe.org.